Bible in the land. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I'm wondering how many of you have ever been a part of a genuine, authentic moving of the Holy Spirit that could be called a revival. Uh, amen. There's been a few. Amen. I wonder how many of us, uh, you don't need to raise your hands for this, how many of us have ever had a personal revival? You see, the theme uh, on the screen has been our theme all summer long, and the hope has been that when you and I finally get it, we'll be like that little child, overwhelmed at the wonder and the majesty of God, and that he is actually inviting you to a close relationship with him that so changes you, so overwhelms you, that's your response. Now, wouldn't it be great if every mom and dad was like that in every family across this country? Wouldn't the children love it if mom and dad had that kind of enthusiasm, huh? Wouldn't it be great if every marriage had this kind of an enthusiasm about the power of Jesus in its marriage? So, Lord Jesus, what do you want to teach us this morning as we open your word? I believe you want to show us that the truth of what was sung not just in that song, but in all of our songs this morning, is truth that you want us to own. I believe, oh God, you don't want us in these next few moments to just go through some kind of a religious ritual of sitting and listening to one person talk. You're wanting to talk into each of our hearts. So why don't you ask God to speak to you in the next few minutes, my friends. Ask God to draw you close to himself and ask him to speak his powerful truth directly into your life. I realize that's a little scary. But God loves you and he has something powerful he'd like to say to you. And so God, thank you for what you're going to say in the next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. And we'll dismiss the little children up through grade four because there's some wonderful adults who would like to help them know Jesus. I'm going to ask you to do three things simultaneously. Uh, take your Bibles and open in the Old Testament to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. If you didn't happen to bring a Bible with you, there's one under the chair in front of you. And somebody tell me what page 2 Chronicles 29 is on in the Bibles underneath the chairs. 326. Thank you, dear Margaret. Second thing I'd urge you to do is take out your notes from the worship folder that you received when you came in. And third, take the pencil that I'm sure you brought because uh, you brought a pencil, right? Because God wants to talk to us in the next couple minutes. And then if you'd look at the front of your worship folder, isn't it great you can do four or five things all at one time? Here's what I wrote for you. Radical change happens in revival. What miracles reach to the very core of a person and reawaken hope in the face of despair? wonder if there's anyone here in the room today who's pretty close to despair. Joy in the midst of disaster. Anybody here who feels like you've experienced a disaster? Peace when in turmoil. Anybody here who you feel like down deep inside you're in turmoil? Revival is a spiritual mystery which often happens when one draws near to God. And when it happens, everything changes. Is it time for you? Two pictures have captured my attention this week. Maybe you saw them on the internet. You recognize this picture? What is it? 
It's the space shuttle landing uh, this week. Uh, you know, I'm sure, that space shuttles are not like normal airplanes. There are no engines that if it doesn't look right, they can say, oh, let's take it around and do it again. It's a glider. And so you better get it right every time because there's no second chance. As I watched it come in a few minutes before 6, this thought struck me. I wonder if, as this 30-year remarkable journey of the space shuttle project is drawing to an end, God watched this final flight and maybe from his throne room actually applauded. Well done, human scientists and engineers. You're using the brain I gave you to think remarkable thoughts and to develop amazing things. Well done. Did you, astronauts, when you were out there roaming in space, looking back at that little planet you call home, did you draw near to God? Did you see my fingerprint in space? Did you come to a new understanding of how awesome I am as a God who can create it all? We know, of course, that many of the astronauts have had powerful spiritual experiences when they've been out there in space as they have met with God. I wonder if God says, and now, humanity, did you look closely at your little planet as you circled it, and did you ask yourself some deeper questions about the condition of the human race? And so a second picture. I wonder if you saw this one. A woman in the midst of a refugee camp fleeing Somalia, where reports are that now there are between 10 and 12 million African people on the edge of starvation. 10 to 12 million men, women, and children starving to death through no fault of their own. Famine, war, pestilence, all kinds of things. So what does God stir up in your heart? You see, my friends, from time to time, you and I face decisions that are very significant and actually fit into a domino series of decisions that when you make this one, it affects this one and this one and this one. This morning, I want us to look at one of three major events that happened in the life of a man by the name of King Hezekiah. If you're reading through the summer with us, you read just today in Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, chapter 29, chapter 30, 31, 32, you see, young King Hezekiah faced a moment like that, and we can learn from his life how God today in our world wants to move in you and me to lead us in making the right kinds of decisions that result in a revival, a personal revival, a family revival, a national revival. Verse 1 of chapter 29 of Second Chronicles, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. Can God use a young man as king of a nation to make the right decision that will change the course of an entire nation? Yes. Verse 2, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. I've asked Sherry to put that little phrase up on the screen because I'd like to ask you to just focus your eyes on it. More than that, let it penetrate your mind and replace the word he with your name. Your name, first name, middle name, last name. And ask yourself the question, is it true about you? And when you come to the end of your lifetime, wouldn't you love for God to be able to say about you, you did what was right in my eyes, consistently in your lifetime? None of us can go back and change anything. 
all of us have the rest of our lives before us. So today, let's take some steps in learning how to live that kind of a life for which you'll be very grateful when you stand before God. In the first month, verse 3, of the first year of his reign, that means he's only been in the palace a few days. Can you imagine all the requests that came to him? King, would you please do this, this, and this? What did he prioritize? He opened the doors of the temple of the Lord. This is the king of Israel. In Jerusalem, the temple is the centerpiece of the civilization, the culture, the city. He opened the doors of the temple. What could that possibly mean? And it says, and he repaired them. The previous chapter, chapter 28, verse 22 says, in his time of trouble, King Ahaz, that's Hezekiah's daddy, became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus. That's the same Damascus as today's Damascus in Syria, who had defeated him, for he thought, since the gods of the king of Aram, Aram is modern-day Syria, have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they'll help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and took them away. What? The king of Israel going into the temple and taking out the sacred objects and artifacts of worship? And he shut the doors of the temple. What? The king of Israel actually closing the doors of the temple and saying, no more worship of Jehovah God in Jerusalem? Yes, that's what happened. And he set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. What? Do you remember that when Paul writes to the Ephesians, the Holy Spirit wrote, led him to write, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God and do not give the devil a foothold. Remember that? That's exactly what's happening here. Grieving God by closing the doors of the temple and giving the devil a foothold in Jerusalem by setting up altars to foreign deities on every street corner. The king of Israel is doing it. Now, we don't know exactly how old Hezekiah was when he watched his daddy do this. Can you imagine, men in the room? But can you imagine what welled up inside of him? Dad, this is wrong. Maybe his dad, the king, invited him into the meetings where they were discussing the culture of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, and he heard his own dad say, we need to shut down the temple. What we do know is when his father died and he became king, one of the very first things he did is he stood and he faced the moment of decision. Do you see the top line on the notes here? Consider the consequences of change or no change. You and I stand in that place every time you have a major decision to make. Consider the consequences of no change means let's just stay the course and let it keep happening the way it's been happening. He could have done that. Leave the temple the way it is. My dad closed the doors. It's no big deal. Let's get on with other things. But God calls you and I, if that first line with which I opened is going to be true of you, we have to consider the consequences of doing nothing when God is calling us to do something. Amen? You missed it, didn't you? We have to consider the consequences of doing nothing when God is calling us to do something. Is that right? The reason it's so important that you and I get this, my friends, is you're the only people who can do something about the wrong that's happening in our world. God's people. Consider the consequences 
of change or no change. Hezekiah did, and Hezekiah sensed God saying, young Hezekiah, I know you're only 25. I know you've only been king a few days, but it's time. Do something. You have to change this. And so look what happened. He opened the doors of the temple, and he repaired them. And then he brought in the priests and the Levites. The Levites were the people responsible for caring for the temple. The priests, the people responsible for leading the people in spiritual growth. He drew them together and he says, Listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves now. And consecrate the temple of the Lord. And remove all the defilement. Watch that carefully. May I suggest that even in your business environment, when you're facing the major changes, God says, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, listen to me carefully and I will guide you to make the right decision for my glory and for your business. So consecrate yourself to me. It means set yourself apart for my glory, not your own. And I'll guide you in how to make the right decisions for you, your family, and your business, right? That's what he promises. Consecrate yourselves, and then the next step, remove the defilement. You see, as you and I consecrate ourselves to God, he will show you what in your life is not right. That is a defilement of your own life, a defilement of your marriage, a defilement of your family, a defilement of your relationship with God. He'll show you what that is, and then you have to make a decision. What do I do about that? God says, get rid of it. And that's why Hezekiah said, it's not enough to just open the temple. It's not enough to even consecrate ourselves. We've got to clean up this mess. My daddy made a mess of this place. He desecrated this place, so we've got to clean it up and consecrate it. You see that? Verse 6, our fathers were unfaithful. Do you see that? Maybe you didn't grow up in a perfect, wonderful home where your parents loved you and took you to church regularly and you give almost anything to go back and relive your childhood again. Maybe you grew up in a broken home an alcoholic home, an abusive home, a tough home. We live in the shadow of the decisions that our parents made. Is that right? You are the product of the decisions that your parents made. Our children live in the shadow of the decisions that we are making. Is that right? And our grandchildren. Our fathers were unfaithful. So what is the price that you are paying now? for decisions that either your parents or you made in your past. Think about that a minute. What is the price that you're paying that either your parents or you made in the past that if you could do it again, you'd make a different decision? <laughs> and what are the price, let's be honest, that our children are living with right now that we have made? And if we had a chance to go back and do it again, we'd be awfully glad to have a second chance at those decisions. We can't go back, but we can learn from it, my dear friends, and it's so important we do. So important that we do. Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place, the temple. They turned their backs on God. They shut the doors of the portico. They put out the lamps in the temple. Those are all the things that they did. Here's a couple things they didn't do. They did not burn incense or present any offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. As a result of that, therefore, God is angry. Why? Because he had said, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to what takes place here, and I will bless you and I'll protect you as long as you honor me. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. 
He has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see. And this is why our fathers have fallen by the sword, why our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. May I suggest to you this morning that if revival is going to really come, you and I have to be able to honestly, honestly look at our lives and make an accurate assessment of the condition of our lives, the condition of our families, the condition of the shadow that is being cast by the decisions that have been made and are being made. Would you agree with that? Now, that's a little bit painful, my friends, but the truth is we have become professionals at insulating ourselves from the pain, disregarding and taking no responsibility for the wrong choices that have been made along the way. We can't go back, but we have to recognize the reality of today and then look at the consequences of not doing anything about it or the consequences of making the change and following what God wants to do. So look what he did, verse 10. Now, I've only been king a couple of days, but I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his first anger will turn away. Now, that's powerful because in the Bible, the covenants are usually God taking the initiative to make them with us. God says to Noah, I will never again destroy the planet Earth with a flood, uh, the human population on the planet Earth with a flood, and I'll give you a rainbow as a beautiful proof of my covenant with you. God says to Abraham, I know you're an old man, but I'm making a covenant with you. I'm going to bless you with a miracle son, and from him will come a whole nation of people who will bless all the peoples on earth. A covenant. But here, Hezekiah is so stirred by the condition into which he has come as king, I'm stepping forward. I'm going to commit myself to God. I'm going to ask God to lead us out of this mess. My sons now, he says to the priests and the Levites, the spiritual leaders, do not be negligent now. Wow. May I be honest and tell you that I've circled that in my Bible. So many times I've almost gone right through the page. I've asked myself over and over, have I been negligent? Maybe the better question is, how many times have I been negligent in my own spiritual journey? I was too tired to read the Bible, so I just set it aside and flipped on the television. It's a lot easier, huh? Negligence. My wife, my daughter, my family, my church needed me to pray, but I was tired. I'll pray tomorrow. Negligence. My sons, do not be negligent now. What has negligence cost me is a question I jotted in my notes. What has negligence cost me and the people impacted by my negligence? I'm asking you to take that question seriously because every person in this room has been negligent, haven't you? We all have. It's part of the human journey. It's part of the American human journey especially. Negligence always brings consequences. Do you agree with that? Always. So King Hezekiah says, no more, not on my watch. Do not be negligent. And then he challenges them with four specific things. Do you see it there? For the Lord has chosen you to stand before him. Powerful truth. And I want to suggest that you could add to that the little words, accountability. He's chosen you to stand before him in accountability for how you're using the lifetime that he's entrusted to you. The gifts and abilities and talents that he's blessed you with. The family that he's entrusted to you. 
Stand before him. Serve him. Paul writes and says we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So is Jesus able to tell you what he'd like to accomplish through you? And minister before, before him. May I suggest that's serving others in his name. Alert enough to see the needs of other people the way Jesus sees the needs of other people. And to burn incense, that of course is what they did when they prayed. So how are you doing with the amount of time you spend worshiping him, praying, especially interceding for your family and other people? You see, friends, you don't buy revival in the land at the Walmart for $3, the song that the choir sang. Revival in the land, revival in a family, revival in a business comes as a result of a powerful but very specific engagement with God. Consecrate yourself. Remove the defilement. Don't be negligent. Look how the people responded. Verse 15. When they had assembled their brothers, so these priests and Levites went and got others, they consecrated themselves and then went in to purify the temple of the Lord as the king had ordered. Consecrate. God, I want my life to count by having my life be all about whatever you want it to be about. I want my life to be for your glory because I think you want my life to be for your glory. In every decision I make, consecrate yourselves. The priests went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it, and they brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple everything unclean that they had found in the temple. There it is. Remove the defilement. And they did. And then in verse 20, by the way, there's about 15 days between the verse I just read and verse 20. It took them that long to clean out the temple and all the junk that was in it. Finally, they came to Hezekiah. They said, it's ready. So you see in verse 20, King Hezekiah and the city officials. Don't you like that? That would be the elected officials and the appointed. These are the business people. These are the politicians who are running the business of the city. These aren't priests and Levites. This is now the, practi the practical, pardon me, practical, pragmatic side of the professional leaders responsible to make the important decisions that affect the whole city, they're coming together with the king and they're going in and saying, this city won't function right unless we have consecrated ourselves. And look how they come to worship. And they brought bulls and rams and male lambs because they were coming to make a sin offering. I see it in verse 21. In fact, I see four times that little phrase, sin offering, used between verse 21 and 24. You know what that is? That's the worship of repentance. We don't bring animals in our day to sacrifice, but the condition of the heart is the same. As you've come in here to worship this morning, did you come recognizing, I need to worship with a repentant heart, acknowledging, God, I'm not a perfect man or a perfect woman or a perfect teenager. God, there's stuff in my life that I don't like, much less you don't like. So I've come into this place to worship you and to ask you, please, God, clean that stuff out of me. It's the worship of repentance, and that, when it happens, God responds to. He loves to respond to a repentant heart, and he says, yes, I forgive you because Jesus Christ paid for that sin, and I cleanse you from it, and I heal you from it. And then we respond to that with joyful worship. Look at verse 29. When the offerings were finished and the king and everyone present with him knelt down and they worshiped. So the end of verse 30, they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and worshiped. What I see there, my friends, is that in a matter of just a few days, a city has been transformed. It's no longer this place of despair and brokenness and hopelessness. People are celebrating and praising God. 
what's happened? The leader said, I will not live with the consequences of doing nothing. God is stirring in my heart to do something, and we'll start by opening the doors of the temple and lifting God back up to his place of prominence in our city. And then we'll clean it all out. We'll consecrate ourselves. We'll remove the defilement. We'll come and we'll worship in repentance. And then after God responds, now we'll worship in joyful celebration. Amen. And it was powerful in that city. That's why in your notes, the theme verse for the whole summer, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, Jesus Christ, draw near to God and experience this. Place of encounter with holy God, my friends, is a radical place of life change. Watch that carefully. Look at that carefully. The place of encounter with holy God no matter where that is, that could be sitting down at the lake. It could be at the top of a mountain, right, Brother Tim and the backpacking guys who went. It could be down in Tennessee, <laughs> right, uh, Monaco's, uh, on a Sabbath retreat. It can be overseas in the Czech Republic. It can be in your bedroom, in your automobile. It can be anywhere because the throne room of God is open to every person in his presence, no matter where you are, right? Because Jesus has opened it to you. And when you meet God in his holy place, in the way that I've described to you this, this morning, it will be life-changing. I promise you, if it's not, call me. Because you'll be the first human being I've ever met who hasn't had a life-change experience in the throne room of God. What do you think about that? Have I lost my mind? It could be any time. Amen. Most all of you know dear Virginia Hobestall, and she wouldn't want me to talk about her, so let's pretend I didn't give you her name. And I went to visit her in the hospital. Well, some call it a hospital. For her, it's a church. You step into her little room in the ICU. God is there. Oh, it's got the same stuff I've seen in all other ICUs with all the same information and the same busy nurse's station. But in the room of that little lady, God is there. And she's just worshiping. How often do you see a woman at total peace in an ICU that isn't all drugged up? with her Bible open, just worshiping. Yeah. <laughs> so what does this look like, my friends, when it hits the street? Chapter 30, verse 1. Hezekiah did an unbelievable thing. He sent word to, do you see it there? All Israel and Judah inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, that may not mean much to you, except all Israel and Judah. It was one united nation, country, you may remember, with Saul, David, and Solomon. But it split into two different countries 200 years before this. Nothing had brought those people together for anything. They were enemies. Their armies actually attacked each other, cousins killing each other, like our own civil war years ago from time to time. 
To make matters worse, the king of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, had started invading the northern kingdom, conquering town after town, burning them to, to the ground, hauling off people into captivity. Hezekiah should have, in the minds of most people, said, forget them. This is just about us. But instead, he sends couriers all over Israel, all the way to the north in Dan and to the Beersheba in the south, to anybody who would receive them. Come to Jerusalem. The temple is open. Let's celebrate Passover, the one great, unique festival that celebrates God's rescue of a people from Egyptian slavery. See, my dear friends, when God starts moving in a place in that way, revival cleans your heart so that the barriers to hope are broken down. Do you agree with that statement? And maybe you're stuck in a relationship, a broken relationship, and there's unforgiveness. Revival breaks down the barriers to hope. Is your heart ready for a fresh revival to break down the barrier to any hope that you can't seem to get your hands around? Look what happened, verse 10. The couriers went from town to town bringing this letter from the king inviting people to Jerusalem. But the people scorned and ridiculed them. Is it possible that some people don't want hope? That some people don't want to be a part of a great move of God? Well, the truth is, there's going to be far more Americans this weekend not in a worship service anywhere in America than who will be in a worship service in America. You see, hard hearts resist revival. I jotted in my notes. Hard hearts breed discord. Isn't that true? But they cannot stop the work of God. When God looks and he sees a hungry, humble heart that is consecrated to him, that is removing the defilement, that is worshiping in repentance, that is following him, he'll move even if there's hard hearts in the room or in the family or in the community or in the nation, right? He's not waiting for every heart to be humbled before him, just one or two. Verse 11, nevertheless, I love when the word nevertheless shows up in the Bible, it means there's hope. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Can you imagine the mockery, people laughing at them? What are you going to Jerusalem for? But God had stirred in their hearts. Humble hearts always invite God's revival. Always. That's part of the reason. Maybe they call it an ICU unit at Lakeland Hospital. It's a place of revival because dear Virginia has that humble, worshiping heart. If you know her, do you agree with that? That's about the biggest amen I've ever heard. It's because we know that dear lady. And she loves Jesus very much. Now what happens when God finds humble-hearted people hungry for a move of God? Look at the next verse. In Judah, the hand of God was on the people. Wow. And God gave them unity of mind. You see, in revival, discord comes together in unity. Unity with him, right? And if we're unified with him, we're unified with each other, right? That could work in a marriage, in a family, in a church, in a business. 
When we're unified with him, we're unified with each other. The hand of God came upon the people, and unity of mind joined them to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered. What had the king ordered? <laughs> Let's get out there and clean up our city, verse 14. So they removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared them away. Revived hearts are repulsed by their sin. Revived hearts are repulsed when they think about their sin. And they ask God, God, please help me clean this up and get this out of my life. Is that right? So you can always measure the authenticity of the degree of genuine revival that's happening in a person or in a family or in a church. How do they feel about their sin? The wrong. Just make a lot of excuses about it? Or are they repulsed by it and they want to get rid of it? That's what happens when there's a genuine moving of God. As the people came together, thousands of them, they realized they hadn't been a part of what had taken place in Jerusalem. They really hadn't had a chance to clean themselves up. So they cried out, Hezekiah, would you please pray? End of verse 18. Hezekiah prayed for the people, saying, May the Lord who is good pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God. And the Lord, the God of his fathers, <laughs> even if he is not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. Look at verse 20. Don't you love it? And the Lord heard Hezekiah's prayer and healed the people, forgave the people, and healed their hearts because they had come to worship him in a powerful way. Revived hearts are always healed by God. And the entire assembly rejoiced. Verse 25. <laughs> the entire assembly rejoiced, including the aliens, the people who were not even a part of them but had come to experience what God was doing. There was great joy in Jerusalem, verse 26, for since the days of King Solomon, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Look at that. That's more than 200 years. Could it be that God is wanting to do a fresh new work in Walworth County? And he'd like to start with you. One person, one family, in whom God is stirring to get this right. Or maybe he wants to do it in Kenosha or in Burlington or in Genoa City or wherever it is you live. And he's simply asking you this morning, how's your heart? There was a great outpouring financially from the people to clean up the temple and to re-engage fully in what God was wanting to do among them. Wow. That happens, verse 5. As soon as the order went out, verse 5 of chapter 31, the Israelites gave generously the first fruits of their grain, their new wine, their oil, their honey. Oh, they brought a great amount so that God's word could advance. You see, revival opens our eyes to see as Jesus sees. Revival opens our hearts to feel as Jesus feels. Revival opens our hearts to be obedient to what God wants to do. Many of you are probably near the end of this book now. You've had it for several weeks. So what happens when radical obedience to Jesus Christ becomes the new normal? Are you willing to see? You have a choice, you know. You can cling to the short-term treasures that you cannot keep, or you can live for long-term treasures that you cannot lose. People coming to Christ.
You and I have an average of about 70 or 80 years on this earth. During these years, we are bombarded with the temporary. Make more money. Get more stuff. Be more comfortable. Live well. Have fun. That's good, but in the middle of it all, we can get blinded to the eternal. You and I stand on the front porch of eternity. Both of us will soon stand before God to enjoy his glorious presence and to give account for the stewardship of our lives. When that day comes, I am, con I am convinced we will not wish we had given more of ourselves to accumulate more money or acquire more stuff or live more comfortably or have taken more vacations or watched more television. Instead, I'm convinced we will wish we had given more of ourselves in anticipation of the day when every nation and tribe and people and language will be there around the throne celebrating that they're not going to spend eternity away from Jesus, but in his presence. By the way, if you're going to be taking the radical experiment, and if you've read all the way to the end, you know what that means. Write me. I'd like to correspond with you and help you get started on that. Powerful stuff this morning, would you agree? You know I love you. You know I'm not in any way accusing anyone of anything. I'm calling us to consider what would God like to do in each of us and with all of us. So I have a, a short song I want you to hear before we close with a rousing celebrative number. Listen carefully and open your heart to see if God wants to speak into your heart about the truth of this song. 